Please take a moment to turn back to Isaiah 25 in your Bibles. Have that passage open so that you can follow along. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. But why should I? It's a good question, isn't it? What on earth should I praise God for? And it's a question that is entirely justified by the context of Isaiah. God's people have had 24 chapters of more or less bad news. Judgment on them. Judgment on the nations around them. Where is this all going? Is it going anywhere? God's people in Isaiah are a small and frankly messed up group of people. What's going to happen to them? So few of them are faithful. It's hard not to draw comparisons with his church today, isn't it? We may look around and we may think, well, I want to follow you, Lord, but frankly, it seems as though the world is going to hell in a handcart. And as for me, I've got problems which you don't seem to be lifting a finger to do anything about. If you flick back to chapter 24, verse 16, Isaiah feels like this. He hears the songs of praise and he says, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me. If we read just a few verses further on, chapter 24, verse 23, it says, The moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. The Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Doesn't look like it. Maybe you're not one of God's people. Maybe you think, why should I praise the Lord? I've got everything I need here. I've got a comfortable life in London. And I don't really care what some religious leader or some invisible God said 2,000 years ago. Or maybe you're somewhere in the middle. Listen, life is difficult enough without all this God stuff. Just don't bother me with it. I'm here for the coffee and the company. Or maybe because my parents made me come. Why should I worship? Well, friends, here is what everybody in this room, everybody watching at home today, has at stake. Safety. Satisfaction. Two enormous and common human needs. If you want to put it in Christian terms, justification and joy. And here is what the Lord says to every person in this room today and everybody at home. Praise me, because if you need safety and satisfaction, well, I am the fortress and I am the feast. Isaiah shows us that message 
by taking a snapshot of the end of the story and pasting it into the middle of his book here. See verse 9. It will be said on that day. That's I speaking of the end. But he knows we need the relief now. He knows we need the answer now. So here it is. Planned long ago. In the future. And yet so certain that Isaiah can speak about it in the present tense. In the past tense, excuse me. Look at verse 1. For you have done wonderful things. I am the fortress and the feast. We're going to tackle this passage in three sections. First, verses 1 to 5. Make God your fortress. Because only he can keep you safe. Why should we? Why should we make God our fortress? Well, verse 2. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more, and it will never be rebuilt. We need to make God our fortress because, friends, every other city will be destroyed. Why the city? Well, the city is what dominates the landscape, isn't it? Physically, culturally, politically, socially, it's London, isn't it? It dominates the landscape, not just the southeast, but the whole country. And it's not dissimilar in Isaiah's time. The city is the place where everybody runs when there is an attack when there's a war, because there's safety within the walls. That's where the garrison is. And the city is where everybody journeys to when there is a feast, when there is a celebration. And yet, that is what God will destroy. That's a bit much, isn't it? Isn't it a bit brutal? For the Lord to destroy the city... But friends, this is not the murder of a freedom-loving, independent collection of people by some cosmic killjoy. This is the putting down of a rebel stronghold. An epicenter of evil, which is a danger to itself and everybody around it. If you need a picture, it's the Dark Tower. It's Mordor. And it stands for every city that has ever represented humanity's rebellion against God, from the city of Cain in Genesis through Babel to Babylon in Revelation. Every place in the world, every place in my heart that is built on pride and resistance to God's loving rule. That is the city. It's the place that fills your head and your stomach and empties your soul. And the Lord loves this world too much to allow that to carry on. So God will destroy the city. And so we need to make him our fortress. What does it feel like? How do we know? How do we know we're finding our safety in the city instead of in him? Well, if somebody says to you, oh, oh, you work in the city. And there's just a tiny little flicker of pride about the prestige of working in the city. Then you know. Or somebody says to you, oh, you're, you're going out for a day in town. 
And there's just a little part of you that thinks, yes, I am that well off and I do have that much time that I can go out for a day in the city. Then you know. Or teenagers, if you find yourself thinking, town is where the fun is, out. There's nothing for me at home. That's when you need to ask, am I finding my safety in the city? Maybe for you it's the favorite coffee shop. You know, the one with the recognizable brand. Every big city has one, two, 20. The familiar decor, you go and you sit down and you buy the hot drink. It's probably just a little bit more expensive than you can justify, but you did anyway. And you can be completely anonymous and unaccountable in that coffee shop, can't you? Especially if you put your earphones in. Oh, I could sit here forever. Safety. Satisfaction. Until, of course, someone's bag knocks your drink over. Someone's children start screaming. Or someone, worse, walks in with a knife. See, the satisfaction is gone. Pretty soon after the coffee runs out. Or it's closing time. If you're like that, that's when you know. It's a passing pleasure at best, isn't it? But at worst, it's a horribly cheap illusion of a meaningful life. Don't find your safety in the city. Make God your fortress. How do you know? Think about Jonah for a moment. How did Jonah react when God sent the worm to eat the root tree that was Jonah's shelter? Anger. So when God rips down your shelter and you feel anger or anxiety, then you know. Make God your fortress. Look at verse 3 with me. Just take a moment. Think about this question. What is the result? What happens when God tears down the city? I think at least two things happen. And the first is that all kinds of people, as a result of God tearing down the city, make him their refuge, their fortress. See, his judgment results in salvation. Why else would he tell us now? If all he wants is destruction, why else would he tell us now? It's because he wants us to be safe. But the second result is that every knee bows, doesn't it? We find that reflected in Romans chapter 14, verse 11. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. It's Paul quoting from Isaiah. It teaches us, does it not, that we are safe if we trust him. Look at verses 4 and 5. You've been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. You see, in him, if God is our fortress, we are safe. We are safe. 
You see, when God's city comes down, the heavenly city, Jerusalem, dressed like a bride for her husband, with golden streets and God as her light, then we are safe. That's when there will be no more Sarah Everards picked off by predators, no more teenagers sucked into gangs, no more people tried and executed by social media. See, we are safe in him if God is our fortress. Some of you today will feel like the enemies, the challenges, the problems that you face in here, out there, are like the flood. Verse 4. The storm that beats against the wall. And it's about to overwhelm you. Make God your fortress. And others of you will feel like you are under such searing stress that it's like being in a pressure cooker. Heat in a dry place. We are safe if God is our fortress. So when God rips down your city, don't get angry. Thank him. Because he's teaching you to trust him. To take refuge in him. And if you do get angry, then think about what that means. And do something about it. Make God your fortress. And if you have, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. See, that's what Isaiah does. Even though the heavenly city hasn't come yet. Even though we're still in the pressure cooker. Even though the flood is about to go over the wall. Isaiah praises, doesn't he? That is prophetic praise. Do that. And make sure that your imagination and your children's imagination are full of the glory and the light and the security of God's city. And then we'll be able to see the best of our city for what it is. Not bad, but a pale reflection. And certainly not worthy of worship. What's so good about the heavenly city? What's going on there? that we would want to be there. This brings us to our second section, verses 6 to 10. There is a feast. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. On God's mountain, in paradise, there is a feast. And what a feast. It says elsewhere in the Psalms, doesn't it? The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Now, if you bring that together with this, and you think, what does that mean? Friends, it means a lot of steak. That's what it means. Be found at his feast. See, he doesn't have a well-stocked wine cellar in his townhouse in Knightsbridge 
or even a beer fridge in the garage like the rest of us. No, the Lord owns the vineyards and he designed the grapes. And what he is giving you and offering you here is not some drink to dull the pain, but the best wine from the wedding at Cana. The wine of love from the Song of Solomon. The communion wine. Be found at that feast. I think some of us, me included, have sometimes in our head an image of God that's like a tutting nutritionist. Shouldn't eat that. Shouldn't enjoy that. Mustn't do that. But friend, he calls you out of the coffee shop and the wine bar, not because he wants to spoil your fun, but because he has something better. Be found at his feast. In fact, on that mountain, won't all the best things about our cities, the creativity, the design, the cuisine, the excitement, the community, will we not find those things there? A few years ago, my wife and I were on holiday in Egypt, and we took a boat, um, and we crossed into Jordan, and then we took a car, and we drove to the foot of Mount Sinai. And in order to get there, we had to leave really early. It was about 4 a.m., and we got up and groggy, and the boat made us feel seasick, and then the car made us feel travel sick, and it was freezing cold. Now, as it is in the desert same way that it's boiling hot during the day. And then you slog up the mountain. You haven't had any breakfast because you felt too sick. And you get to the top and it's still freezing cold and they tell you, right, go and sit there and watch what happens. And what happened was the sun came up. And there we were on Sinai with the sun coming up. Empty stomachs, cold hands, full hearts, There was a feast on the mountain. Some of you may be asking, well, what what good is all this? How do we know it will last? I remember a friend of mine called Sue. She was a leader of the youth group that I attended as a teenager. And she died of cancer. And in the last few months of her life, I had the privilege of being at their house and working at their business and occasionally being able to help care for her. And I remember when she died, seeing her body and thinking, she seemed so small and crumpled and bleached as if she's had all the colour sucked out of her and she's black and white. There was such emptiness in death. And we forget it and we don't see it because it's been medicalised and put into hospitals. What about death? Let's look at verses 7 and 8. He will swallow up on this mountain 
the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And this is Isaiah really enjoying himself. Because in his time, death was the great mouth that swallowed up hope, love, personality, memory, history. Gone. But here is a God who is so great that he will swallow death. And if he will swallow death, then there will be no end to the feast and no end to us. Because the shame of the covenant curse, death, is lifted at the covenant meal on the mountain. The Lord has spoken. See, the same word that called forth life at the beginning is the word that undoes death now. So there will be no goodbye dinner, just a feast forever. No squabbles at supper. No uncomfortable undertones at the dinner table. No bill to pay. No tears. No secret shame. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you live. Be found at his feast. How? What do I do? Well, child of God, we wait, verse 9. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. And that's hard, isn't it? Because before the feast comes the fast. And that is often where we are today. The bridegroom is away. We're waiting for him to come back. Wait. That's hard. But, you know what it's like when someone's cooking dinner? You can smell it, can't you? The scent comes out of the kitchen. You know it's coming. You can smell it. You can hold your hunger because that smell is a promise. And that's what this passage is, friends. Smell the promise. Hold on. It'll be worth the wait. But we're not just called to wait. We're called to rejoice. Verse 9. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Rejoice. I wonder, how much do you care about the Lord's Supper? That's when we celebrate the feast that's to come, isn't it? The wedding feast of the Lamb. How much joy do you take there? And... When we celebrate it, how much does it feel like a feast? How much does it feel like a funeral? Of course, it should be respectful. We're remembering the Lord's death. But it's foreshadowing the feast. That's where we rejoice. 
And in the meantime, it's not Sunday, so you can't come to the Lord's Supper. What do you do? Well, perhaps being found at his feast would lead you to stop after drink number two when you're out with your friends. Because you remember that the feast above means that your soul has been filled already and therefore your wallet doesn't have to be emptied tonight. Or perhaps it could lead you to go out for those drinks in the first place with those parents or those colleagues or those friends even though you're tired and you hate those social things. Because feasting is where you're headed. And somebody who's looking at your life better be able to tell. How dare I say that death is not the end? See, if you've seen death, we've experienced the death of somebody close to you, that question might be in your mind. How dare we say that death is not the end? How on earth is death swallowed up? How? We have a clue in the next chapter. 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Resurrection. Resurrection is the answer. Or how is resurrection the answer? Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We will rise with him. One Corinthians fifteen verse fifty four. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? If You see, if we trust that his death on the cross was in our place, then we are united to him in his death. And if we are united to him in his death, then we will rise with him. And if we rise with him, then death is swallowed up in victory. Do you believe that? Do you see verses 6, 7, 8, our passage that it is for you, this invitation to the wedding banquet. All the nations, all the nations are invited. There is more than enough at this feast. If you've not trusted Christ, then I want to ask you, will you Make God your fortress and your feast. Trusting in his death, his resurrection, his life.
What will you do? He founded his feast. But what if we don't accept the invitation? And here we are at the part of the passage we'd all rather not have to look at. Verses 10 and 12. Moab shall be trampled down in his place. As was trampled down in a dunghill. And 11 and 12, the Lord will lay low. And verse 12, he will bring down, lay low, cast to the ground, to the dust, Moab. Of course, Moab is just a figure for all rebels everywhere. If we don't accept the invitation, we will go down. Don't go down to the dust. If we do, it will be our choice because Moab, all he has to do to go down is not move. Moab shall be trampled down in his place. You see, the Lord extended the invitation. So come in, come to the feast. Moab just didn't move. That's where God's punishment finds him, where he chose to stay. Don't go down in the dust. You see, and then verse 11 tells us that no amount of skill of our hands, no cleverness, will save us. The language of Isaiah is, we will find ourselves swimming in the cesspool. Do you remember reading Matthew 22 earlier? What did the Lord do for those who rejected his invitation? He sent out his army and he destroyed those murderers, those who had killed his son. And he destroyed their city. The high fortifications of his walls he will bring down. And there, friends, there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the Lord takes no pleasure in that. That is why he warns us. What will stop us accepting the invitation? Verse 11. It's pride. Pride is the problem. Pompous pride. What should be the effect if somebody comes to you and they say, here for nothing is eternal safety and eternal satisfaction. It should make us grateful, humble, not prideful. What does Moab say? No thanks. I'll be just fine on my own, thanks. I've got my pride, you know. I don't know if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. In the very last book in that series, there is a picture, a picture of heaven, hell, and some of Aslan's, Christ's creatures, some dwarves, are sitting in a stable, which they think is all that's left of the world. And some other of his creatures, who love him and have followed him there, are trying to open the eyes 
of these miserable dwarves. And they're trying to feed them with some of the fruit of heaven. You see, the dwarves continue to believe that they are in a dark shed and that somebody's trying to shove stable filth into their mouths. That's pride, isn't it? What I've got here is better than whatever you can offer me. We all know the saying, pride comes before a fall. Here's another. Pride can turn a feast into filth. Don't go down in the dust. Ask the Lord to help you let go of pride. Pride says, I'm already safe, I'm in control. I know best. It's not worth dying for. There was an article in the news this week about the finding of a body that had been covered in ash at the eruption of Pompeii. Here's a description of what it was like. It was 1 a.m. when the pyroclastic surge produced by the volcano reached the city for the first time with a temperature of 3 to 400 degrees. A white hot cloud that raced towards the sea at a speed of 100 kilometers per hour, which was so dense that it had no oxygen in it. Some people had seen the signs and they'd left Pompeii in the days before. Others stayed in the city and died with it. Isaiah 25 is a sign. Come out. If friends, if we have already left, then we can take heart because he is a refuge for the needy in distress. He can protect against the flood and the fire until the Lord wipes every tear away. But if not, friend, then there is an offer here of safety and satisfaction, of a fortress and a feast forever. Come out. Make God your fortress and your feast. Amen.